0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sebastian Rojas Cabal, one of your hosts in this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Colin Gerald Mack, who is professor of sociology and chair of the Environmental Studies Department at NYU. And we'll be talking about Professor Gerald Mack's new book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town, which was just published by Princeton University Press. Colin Gerald Mack, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. So let me start by asking about your previous book, The Global Pigeon, which explored what you called the social experience of animals. How did you grow from writing a book about pigeons to writing about fracking?
1: Well, you know, I think like a lot of academics, you know, I have a lot of interest, but because I'm an ethnographer and so i'm basically you know one long-term project at a time at any given moment you can only pick one so it's to say i have broad interests in how humans relate to the non-human world environment society relations and that even that book about pigeons i mean obviously it was about pigeons but it was also about like the way we experience the environment in urban settings and conflicts that emerge over how we ought to relate to not the non-human world the animals and and the the physical environment and so on a broader level, I think that both the books are connected in that way. Uh, but also with both projects, I am opportunistic. I didn't think I was going to write a dissertation and a first book about pigeons. I was interested in the built environment and public space, and I began doing the, that work. And I was su- sort of surprised and 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 uh, interested in the fact that conflicts over wildlife and pigeons in particular were like a major flashpoint in debates over how we ought to design and use and police urban spaces. And so and then with this with the fracking project, my undergraduates at NYU were very involved in activism to try to create a, you know, to push for a ban on fracking in New York, which was successful. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania. And so as it picked up there, and I started hearing it being referred to as the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, I was very curious and a bit alarmed about what was happening in my home state. And so I just kind of, I had a sabbatical coming up, so I just pounced on it. And so in broad strokes, I think both projects share themes, but in in the specifics, I'm also opportunistic and open to what's in front of me and letting the path lead. Before
2: we dig deeper into the book, tell us more about fracking as an activity. What does it do to communities and kind of at broad strokes?
1: So uh, quickly on the technical side, fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing, and what, what they are after when they frack is oil and gas that is trapped inside of shale rock. The shale rock is buried deep under the ground, like a mile, sometimes two miles underground. And so what we colloquially call fracking is actually two processes. The first is uh, horizontal drilling. So the the big innovation in horizontal drilling didn't really take off as a thing until the 2000s. When you drill down with a remote control drill bit and as you approach that shale layer, you actually can begin to curve the drill bit so that when you hit the shale, you are now drilling horizontally. And they can because it's a remote control drill bit, they can drill horizontally for up to two miles, right? You don't need to have it connected to anything at the surface. And so now you are drilling along and breaking up that rock as you go along and releasing the gas and the oil in it. Now, the other major part of the process is actually hydraulic fracturing. Hydraulic fracturing is the specific process of once you've drilled into that rock, now you want to crack open more of it. And so you put you pump down the hole at incredibly high pressure, millions of gallons of mostly water, but also mixed with sand and uh, some sort of the chemicals, which are anti-corrosive agents and lubricants. And the idea is that that water will break open and push its way into the rock to release more of the oil and gas. And that sand, as tiny as it is, can hold those cracks open enough to let the oil and the gas flow out. So that's what fracking is as a, as a, as a process. As far as getting into a little bit, what it does is, if you want to drill a well, you need to create a clearance of about four to five acres. And so, so you create this level area, and they call it a well pad. And a lot of folks will wind up with one of these things right in their backyard. And then you can drill up to 18 or 20 wells on a single pad. So each one of them, they will drill down and then they will drill horizontally and can go under even other properties. From that, but the person who hosts the structure will have this giant well pad, and each of these uh, gas wells will—it sort of basically looks like a huge fire hydrant hooked to a utility shed. Because each one of them, the utility shed, as it—I mean—that's what just what it looks like. But it's a dehydrator that's burning off the impurities. So for those that host it, it's a major industrial structure in your backyard. To pump 5 million gallons of water into one well takes hundreds of big rig tanker trucks. And then there's dozens more to deliver the sand. And so as far as what it looks and feels like when they the lead up to fracking is huge caravans of dozens upon dozens upon dozens of big rig trucks uh, driving and idling along rural roads and driveways. It's a huge industrial process that is happening in areas that are very rural and remote. And that often don't have any other kind of industrial activity going on. And so it's it's very disruptive. After they drill a well, they'll often burn the gas off before they hook it to a pipeline. And it sounds like a jet engine. The flame is like 60 feet high. And so people will sometimes leave town because that can go on for days. Even with your windows closed and earplugs in, it can be it can be deafening. And then of course, it's not often, but then there's occasionally there's much worse impacts. Like in rural areas, everybody basically has their own water well. It's just a hole poked in your back or the front yard. And that can get flooded with methane or some of the chemicals that, that they're drilling with. It doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it's catastrophic. You know, you can't drink your water. You can't use your water in your home. It more or less makes your house worthless. I've not seen a gas company that confesses to it and just pays you. So then you're, you embark on a lawsuit. Um, and even if it's successful, I followed six families where the lawsuit was like a a six-year process to get a payment that actually was not that great
2: in the end, less than the value of their house. And before we get into what this has done to people and families, let's zoom out to talk about the place, right? You, you're, from, you're from Pennsylvania. And in chapters one and two, you give us a history of the general area, and you kind of set it up as this boom and bust, recursive historical loop in a way. Tell us about Lycoming County, Williamsport, Northern Appalachia. So Lycoming County is in, is in north central Pennsylvania. It's about equidistant between
1: Erie and, uh, and Scranton, if that means anything to any listeners. Um, it's very rural, Except Williamsport itself, which is the county seat, is a small city. I mean, it's not, you know, 29,000 residents. It's a very conservative county. It went more than 70% for Trump in both the 2016 and 2020 election. And if you took Williamsport out, which is kind of like this little semi-liberal enclave, and just focused on the rural areas around it, it probably would have been over 90% for Trump. And its claim to fame these days is that Williamsport hosts the Little League World Series, you know, which is kind of cute little... Or big event, actually. Historically, its claim to fame was that in the late 1800s, it claimed to mill the most board feet of lumber anywhere in the world, and it was wealthy enough that they claimed at one point to have the most millionaires per capita. However, like so many places in you know in the Midwest and the so-called Rust Belt, it's had population decline since the 1960s. It's lost a third of its population. Much of its manufacturing has dried up. It's basically not a place where anybody migrates to. It's a place that people struggle to hold on and maybe decide to leave. And so that's sort of the the state of affairs, if you will, when when fracking comes along is is a town trying to find and a county sort of trying to find its way in a post-industrial era where more people are flocking to cities and to the coasts. Um, And then fracking presents itself as both an opportunity for individual landowners to potentially hold on to their ancestral estates, their ancestral farms by leasing and making money and also offering an opportunity of potential jobs without a college degree that might be upwards of 70, 80,
2: $90,000. And in that context, in the end of the introduction, you write something along the lines of like, you started with a question about whether fracking tainted the water and ended up writing a book about democracy mm-hmm. or the nature of democracy. Yeah. And and to start looking at, at what's involved there in chapter three, at the end of chapter three, and I'm going to quote you here, you write private mineral ownership, a peculiarly American idea, made fracking compatible with the American dream. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that alignment between private mineral ownership and the American dream. How was that experienced by those communities?
1: So this and this gets right to the title of the book. So up to heaven and down to hell. So uh, America, and it's not an accident, it was quite intentional. America is the only country in the world where while it's well, the most typical form of land ownership includes air rights and the rights to everything underneath the surface, all the way down to the mantle. So the phrase that is in common laws, whoever owns the soil, it is theirs up to heaven and down to hell. And why I say, just to say why that's not at all accidental is we actually inherited most of our property law from England, and in, which included mineral rights ownership. However, there was, this, there was this great caveat, which was that the crown retained ownership of anything, valuable minerals, coal, coal, oil, gas, silver, and gold. So yes, you technically own the soil underneath you, but if there was anything valuable there, you had to give it up. And so the so-called founding fathers were very adamant about striking that exception and following on um, the very closely hewing to the, to the philosophy of John Locke, who argued that you know any individual who owns property how you um, legitimately own property is by transforming it through your labor into something valuable. In and of itself, he argued, land is not valuable, and anyone who who transforms land and makes it productive has the has legitimate ownership over it. Then, of course, what the so-called founding fathers were afraid of was all the ways that the government might be able to exert, as they called it, tyranny over the masses. And so. You know, so they wanted to ensure that private industry was protected from the hands of a groping government that might want to tax them and and take ownership. And so that was that was what they did. We made we made the strongest form of mineral ownership anywhere in the world. And why I think that also relates to the the American dream. um, and, And I'm also it's not to say that I'm that I'm like really sunny about this. I mean, it has a very dark history, but it was the it was. This, this Lockean notion of, of ownership through productivity is actually what literally what justified the taking of land from American Indians. And westward expansion is what allowed so many relatively impoverished whites to claim ownership through homesteading, which, of course, other racial groups were excluded from. And so um, this this became so we've got this history through through homesteading of property ownership itself, of course, being a cornerstone of the american dream and then that you can particularly in a place like this where historically many people farmed or worked with their hands the idea that your own land it you can be self-sufficient and your own land and your own working of that land can be what makes you productive and self-sufficient that's all this 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 important backdrop and then so now fracking comes along and it, this doesn't explain everybody but a lot of folks are sitting on a portion of an estate that may have been in their family for three, four, five generations. And now the current generation may be struggling to hold on to that. Um, Most of them aren't farming anymore, so they might be on a portion of farmland but are not farming anymore. And it has very uh, great sentimental value to them, but in some instances, is a millstone, it they pay they got to pay a lot of property taxes if you own seventy acres, hundred acres, and if you're not working the land as a farm, then then actually, why do you need that much property, right? And so I met a lot of folks who were concerned and anxious that they were going to lose the family farm on their watch, that it just wasn't worth it anymore. And now all of a sudden, people say there's this lottery ticket, you know, you can lease your land, you get an immediate bonus, you sign on the dotted line, you get a bonus paid out per acre. And then if you are fortunate enough that they extract gas from underneath your property, you get a royalty check every month. This was a godsend to a lot of people. And there was a sense of pride on the one hand that people at least thought they were might be contributing to so-called energy independence that, right, that like we're going to produce our own energy and I'm a small part of that. And also this pride in the land being productive again. I may not be farming it anymore, but now here is an opportunity where we can mine and create energy and I can create a self-sustaining lifestyle from that. That's sort of how this intersects with the American dream. You mentioned
2: Locke earlier and in chapter four, kind of, introduce a lot of other theories. introduce Locke, you introduce Rousseau, you introduce Tocqueville, you introduce Isaiah Berlin, to discuss and describe the theoretical underpinnings not only of a private mineral ownership or like this idea of the freehold, but of other kind of distinctively American political ideas and institutions. Later in chapter eight, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself, but I'm trying to, to put these two things together, you show us how in Lycoming County, Many institutions to which, for example, Tocqueville would have Marvel at, right, as this kind of hallmarks of like, small d democracy, have become, and you write this, little more than a tragic simulacrum of civic engagement. Tell us more about the situation. How does, like, Coman County goes from being an example of kind of the Jeffersonian ideal of, like, the nation of farmers to, as you write, becoming, quote-unquote, overruled? Interestingly,
1: maybe I'll get historical again for a moment because it connects to Locke. So Pennsylvania is unique in that it's one of the only states that all of the land that was originally um, occupied by Native Americans was bought. There actually was, it actually was not taken through war. That doesn't mean that there wasn't anything seedy or underhanded, but it's just to say that William Penn, who was the, was the original um, founder of Pennsylvania as a commonwealth, was, who was a Quaker, was very adamant about about that. and so But there was, the period, there was a period of 13 years where what is currently Lycoming County was still owned by the Iroquois but was occupied by squatter white settlers. So then what happened was is after the end of this 13-year period, Pennsylvania purchased Lycoming County, the people who had been living there petitioned the state and said, explicitly invoking Locke, and said, this was worthless land and at peril of our life, we have transformed it. We farmed it. Uh, we have made it productive. And on the basis of that, we argue that we are entitled to own this land. And they were granted ownership. And so, so very much. And as you alluded to, this was Thomas Jefferson's idea. You know, he he distrusted cities and he distrusted elites in cities who and their ability to hoard resources and political power to exploit and 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 uh, you know and, and otherwise control the sort of real Americans, if you will, uh, who who lived in the country and were self-sustaining and farmed. And so he had this idea that I think is very American, that property ownership is the basis of democracy, because property ownership and being self-sufficient on your property means you're not reliant on the government. Uh, And you also, you know, you can protect your property with weapons if need be. And that's the founding of Lycoming County was explicitly on that Jeffersonian idea and appealing to the philosophy of Locke to justify their ownership of the land. And then in this area and in many other stretches of America, but in particular Appalachia, which has a kind of history of being more isolated, more sort of libertarian or independent-minded than other regions around it, you have this this sort of streak of of individualism, of self-sufficiency, perhaps more exaggerated even than it is in other places. But then getting to the other side of this, as Tocqueville wrote about, because these are places that distrust federal and even state government, what that means is they build a lot of local government. Uh, People are very involved in civic association of all kinds. And right into the present day, even a township, a rural township might only have a few few hundred residents. And that includes children. And yet a, a zoning hearing might bring dozens of them out. That's a, you know, that's a pretty high percentage of people participating, right? Um, speaking on the record, educating themselves about the issues and coming with their concerns and debating on whether a land use is consistent with a rural zoned area or residential zoned area, right? And so part of that distrust of federal or state regulation is then understanding that you have to build your own forms of governance and problem solving. And so so this area, this region has, I think, a, a, a very um, a culture of civic association that, as you alluded to, Tocqueville, I think, would admire. Now we get to fracking. One thing that Pennsylvania did and they're not unique. Colorado did this. Texas did this. I think it's ironic that conservative legislatures, uh, you know, that conservative legislatures who claim to support Civic Association, local democracy are the ones that did this, but Republican legislatures in every major oil and gas producing state just about were gung ho on the oil and gas industry and the oil and gas were very open to concerns of the petroleum industry who said to them, hey, it can't be the case that every time we go into a new township or a new county, that there's different rules, right? So the petroleum industry said we need consistency. And so the conservative legislatures basically said, great, we're glad to provide it for you. You can even help us write the rules. Um, And so most of these conservative legislatures, Pennsylvania included, wrote very... Industry friendly rules about how it was going to be regulated. And then what they said is we're going to preempt municipalities' ability to control fracking through zoning. So even though municipalities have the ability to say, for instance, this is a rural zoned area, you can't put a parking lot, you can't put a factory in, you have to allow fracking. Um, fracking had to be allowed in every zone as long as it met these state requirements, were incredibly minimum. I mean, for instance, 500 feet from the closest drinking water well, even though contamination can occur at 4,000 feet, 5,000 feet. That was the situation whereby I witnessed what I sort of called this tragic simulation of democracy. So because, for instance, it was still the case that every gas well had to have a permit hearing. But the thing is that the reason why it's it's a tragedy is that the local municipality couldn't actually overturn the permit or deny
2: it. I think what you were just alluding to or just mentioning is at the heart of what you call the public-private paradox.
1: So what I call the public-private paradox, in short, is how there are a lot of actions that are not legally regulated because they are treated as private decisions. The kind of car you drive, where you live, uh, how, many, how many things you throw away, uh, you know, that these are all sort of treated as the equivalent of free speech, right? That basically, as long as you are not directly harming others, that is a private right. And why we treat it as a private right, as an impersonal liberty, is because the idea of it is that your actions in doing that does not prevent other people from doing the same. So where we draw that boundary of what is treated as a private liberty, as something that is not regulated by the state is if it does not negatively impact the public good, at least in a direct way. I mean, arguably, of course, we have debates over this. A lot of hate speech does seem to harm the public good, but we have a very high bar for better or worse. You have to directly show that somebody saying something like, you know, like if, if I say, go out and hurt these people and then you do, then maybe that's not protected as free speech. But short of that, It's protected, right? And so we treat a lot of decisions that are actually environmental decisions that way. Whether you want to drive an electric vehicle that's hooked up to solar panels or you want to drive a Hummer, it's entirely up to you, right? But the problem is, of course, that those decisions in the aggregate directly infringe on other people's rights. The amount of carbon we are pumping into the atmosphere because of our private decisions is directly leading to floods, droughts, hurricanes that are killing other people so literally infringing on their life uh, or infringing on their their property rights. Some people, their their land no longer becomes something that they can make a living off of. And I think fracking very explicitly and concretely illustrates this. My next door neighbor can lease their property, I have no say in the matter. A landman sits down with them privately at the kitchen table and they sign a lease and that is protected as a private property right. right? You don't have to ask any of your neighbors, but is it impossible to frack a well on somebody's property without their neighbors being impacted. Even if the worst doesn't happen, like contaminated water, you got all the truck traffic, the light pollution, the venting of volatile organic compounds, but we treat that as a private decision. And then, but fracking makes it really explicit. You know, I followed these six families who wound up with contaminated contaminated water from a gas well drilled on a neighbor's property. So there it's very visceral and direct. That neighbor did not have to ask any of anyone else, are you okay with me doing this? They don't have to share any of the money they make from doing it. But yet their decision to do that, and I'm not blaming the individual property owner, I'm blaming the gas company, but their decision to do that contaminates the water of six people around them, right? And so what is nice about fracking as an example of this is it's very direct and you can see it. But what I say is actually, and a lot of us might look at somebody who leased their land and if we're environmentally minded and be upset with them and blame them. But many of us, pretty much all of us, unless you are entirely off the grid with a composting toilet, um, you every day are doing things that directly impact other people's ability to enjoy clean air, clean water. The thing is, we usually don't see it. We don't trace it, right? Um, It's either future generations or somebody else living somewhere else. And so, um, you know, it's not as viscerally apparent to us. But that's the public-private paradox. And ultimately, in the end, what I argue is we can't treat decisions that are really land use and environmental decisions as private decisions that we protect as much as free speech for instance, um, in that way, because it, it's neg- it, because of the impact it has on the public good.
2: I think it's interesting how you propose this concept of the public-private paradox. And before that, you give us the history of, of another like widely used concept in, I guess, like environmental thinking, which is the tragedy of the commons. What do you think, kind of analytically, what kind of conceptual purchase do we get from the public-private paradox that we didn't get from the idea of the tragedy of the commons.
1: First of all, and I'm doing this explicitly to try to write something that will appeal to people who don't share my politics, so conservative and even libertarian-minded people. I'm explicitly, I mean, there, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but I'm explicitly emphasizing how private decisions infringe on others' liberty, right? I'm So I'm talking about rights, because even the most libertarian-minded person agrees that some boundaries need to be drawn if your behavior infringes on other people's civil rights. And so part of it is 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 a move to 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 just reframe a similar idea, but in political language. The tragedy of the commons is simply framed in terms of sustainability and resources, not framed in terms of politics. So part of it is 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 making that move to to link it up to conversations that are happening in other circles. But I will say that, you know, one of the things that Hardin were, so basically the tragedy of the commons for listeners that are less familiar in super brief is this argument that, you know, he, Hardin asked people to imagine if you graze cows on a common pasture, it's not owned by anybody, um, and that's how you make your living, then it's in your benefit to graze as many cows as possible, to breed more of them, because for every cow that you slaughter or use their milk, uh, you get more money or, or at least more food, right? And so, but the problem is if everybody did this and introduced more and more cows, bred more cows onto this commons that eventually there wouldn't be enough grass and everybody would lose that that actually the, the you know that the, it wouldn't be the, the meadow or the mm-hmm. pasture would not be able to regenerate itself and now nobody would have any pasture or livelihood right that was the tragedy of the commons and for Hardin, the solution was well one solution and the solution that was most celebrated by conservatives was private property ownership so what he argued was he actually said that, you know, a, that that commons are a problem, but if you make it private property, and I, it's not it's, it's a little coy, but a super quick example I give in the book to give the reader a sense is just like, think about it. Are you more likely to clean a public bathroom that you use every day or your own? Right. Even if that public bathroom is disgusting and you use it every day, you don't feel the same commitment to it as if it's your own. So the so-called wise use movement in the Reagan era explicitly drew on and held up Hardin as a hero um, for why we ought to privatize public forests, for instance. Uh, No, you know, if even if we sell off public forests, we're not going to use up all the trees. And by the way, the oil and gas industry says this, too. Like I was at presentations where they're like hey, we're going to do this the right way because if we don't do this in the right way, you're not going to invite us in your backyards and then other people won't want to lease to us. So trust us, we're going to do this the right way, right? And so so, so the difference, the major differences there is what I'm, what I'm saying is like, is basically um, private property ownership actually accelerates the issue here, accelerates the problem. Because, so actually, you know, because it creates the illusion that in, that an individual's private decision is purely theirs to make, but it you know, but actually, first of all, you were act, it relies on public resources, the public roads that the trucks use to get there, um, the groundwater. You know, you, five million gallons for one well, right? It relies on clean groundwater uh, that is not necessarily owned by any one person to frack those wells, right? So, so it's not actually a self-sustaining private enterprise and a private choice. It relies on public goods and it produces public consequences right pollution and so so but you don't but 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 by framing it as a and it's a legally protected individual decision because of the way property rights are constructed it actually exacerbates a resource dilemma so the overlap is It plays out the same as far as the social dynamics as a tragedy of the commons, because I'm like, hmm, maybe I don't want to lease. I'm a little concerned about this. And then I say, but hell, everybody else around me is leasing. So I'm going to deal with the externalities anyway. I might as well make some money. So the social dynamic as it plays out is a tragedy of the commons. But the big difference is it's a tragedy of the commons playing out with private property owners, right? And so obviously the solution is not private property. And I, I think I shed some light on things that Harden overlooked about the ways that private property can mask resource dilemmas
2: rather than solve them. Yeah, you you essentially disarm Hardin's solution. And there's also Eleanor Ostrom's work, which I would love if we get into, but we'll see if we have time. And early in the book, and we're kind of shifting to to the story of exploitation, not of exploitation of resources, but of exploitation of people. Early in the book, you're right that fracking is intimate. And I think one particularly powerful way this comes through is toward the end of the book, those chapters about indentured, overruled, and unmoored. Three ideas kind of come through at that point. The idea of procedural injustice, the idea of ambient insecurity, and the idea of what you call civic disassociation or dissociation. Tell us about kind of more the intimate dimension of, of these concepts
1: yeah and why why i want to emphasize that fracking is intimate is that fracking often is talked about in these very broad macro ways so first when you know when the process first started in the late 2000s it was about well, all this jobs it's going to create, all this money it's going to create, it's transforming geopolitics. Now, America can become energy independent, and we can even sell to Europe, and they can get off of Russia's Gazprom, right? And then even politically, when it became a sort of partisan issue, it's well, conservatives support, you know, support it. Democrats don't support it. And so it got sucked up into this sort of hyper-partisanship. And even the fights over whether we ought to ban fracking or, or not on a national level, which is actually impossible except through congressional action, just to say Biden can't ban fracking, only on federal lands, or even at the state level, right? So it's this political football. But meanwhile, how fracking actually plays out is an individual sitting at their kitchen table with a landman, looking at a lease and signing it right? Often without talking to anybody else. So it's like the most private decision often happening in the most private sphere in individual's home. And it's also intimate because it then if they, it happens, it happens right in your backyard or underneath you. It's not some distant thing. It's that people living in a very rural area, you know, all of a sudden their field may play host to a five acre well with dozens of trucks parked on it with this huge, larger than life erector set looking drilling rig uh, in, in their backyard. And it's also intimate as far as the other way I mean it is what I already described as the public private paradox. Like most of us don't actually recognize that we are engaged in a resource dilemma, right? Like I, you know, I make decisions every day. I use resources. I could create waste that is harming somebody else somewhere else even if it's mostly non-human animals, right? But I don't actually see that. It's not intimate, it's abstract, right? Like what my contribution is to global warming, to plastic in the oceans. But fracking, it often is very explicit, right? My next door neighbor is winds up with contaminated water or my next door neighbor is calling me because they can't get into their driveway because of all the big rig trucks driving up and down. And so this conflict between private decisions and the public good plays out with next door neighbors in a community in in that way. Um, and so so that's, th- those are sort of the main ways that I, I, what I mean when I say that it's intimate. And actually injustice, you know, And I wrote a paper about this before the book about, you know, fracking, I think, intersects with environmental justice in in unusual ways. It's not sort of the traditional story. It's first of all, it's mostly white landowners. And so it's not like people living in cities renting or who don't really have control over their environment who might wind up with, say, an incinerator in their backyard. It's people voluntarily signing a lease to invite a company to drill and making money from doing it. And even if and it's to say, I mean, certainly a lot of the people I met were of modest means, if not even under the poverty line, but they were they were white and they own property. Right. And so it's not that sort of traditional story of like involuntary exposure to environmental risk where somebody else is reaping all the benefits. You are getting some economic benefits and you are choosing to do
0: this. Right. slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
1: But then this idea that you alluded to already is where it you know you can see injustice, environmental justice issues intersecting is the procedure, right? So the outcome itself, so there's we can think of the, the outcome way of thinking about environmental justice is the distributions of goods and bads. That's the outcome, right? It's like, and poor people and minorities generally wind up disproportionately receiving environmental bads, whereas wealthier elites, whites have a disproportionate share of the environmental goods. Procedural injustice is about how much you have a say in matters that affect you. And you can feel that injustice has occurred, even if the outcome itself is not problematic. Um, Of course, they're related. But so here, and so how how procedural just justice manifests is, yes, people voluntarily signed a lease. Um, however, they often did not understand what they were signing. Even people that hired a lawyer, many of the lawyers were ill-equipped to really understand. I mean, you can imagine, we're talking about companies like Exxon. I mean, multi-billion dollar companies. I mean, they know how to write a lease in a way that uh, will get them what they want, but it's obscured and buried, or they write in general enough terms that a lawyer does not, who's not familiar with fracking doesn't understand what they're actually allowing, right? And so so what you wind up with is, um, and and really, maybe I'll tell the story through an individual because really the book is an ethnography and we've been talking about the big ideas, um, but it's a very narrative book that's driven by about a dozen folks that you get to know really well. This person, George, who owns 77 Acres, very supportive of fracking, leased it, wound up with six wells in his backyard, told me when I first met him that he wanted to be in a commercial for the gas company because he was so excited about it. And he made a lot of money. Um, his first royalty check for one month of production was $34,000, but- what's really interesting and surprising is that it's when the money starts rolling in that he turns against drilling and he did not wind up with contamination there was no major catastrophe no major spill but it's about him realizing that he more or less what I say had become a tenant on his own property so he didn't know that all the things that the lease allowed the company to do, some of the main ones that uh, that they could withdraw millions of gallons of water from his creek. He found out about this when there was a classified ad in the newspaper because the gas company was required to post an ad when they were going to start doing it. There was a security camera that he did not know was placed on his property that recorded him walking across the well pad which is not allowed because the well pad is leased to the company. And he was threatened with, with getting arrested for trespass. And so he all of a sudden was like, holy crap, like here I am living on this ancestral property that I'm so proud of to be, you know, to be holding on to. And now I'm no longer in control, right? Um, And so that's the procedural injustice, right? This way that he didn't understand what he had signed over, including, by the way, the timeline. And that might be the most tragic part. A lease is a five-year lease, right? But if if and when they drill, then they now hold the lease for as long as they are producing. And there are multiple layers of shale underneath the Marcellus shale. And a gas well in the Marcellus Shale can produce for 30 years. And after that, they could go for deeper layers. So a lot of folks like George thought they were talking about five years where then they get to decide again whether they want to keep going. This is going to be doing, you know, they're going to be drilling on his land after he's dead. That's the procedural injustice. And this relates to this other chapter, which this idea that you alluded to, um, ambient insecurity. A lot of people here have lived here for generations. You might literally be living on a road that bears your last name or or the mountain, the closest mountain bears your last name. And so there's this incredible sense of, of, of deep connection to place and a sense of comfort and security and building one's identity around this place and it's a and, and a very rural quiet place And so then when, when fracking comes along, it's almost incomprehensible how much it can transform a landscape. I mean, you know, in in some instances, literally carving off the side of a mountain to, to level it, to put a well pad trees that are 130 years old, stacked up on the side of the road, like matchsticks, this flaring, right? These were burning these 60 foot flames for days at a time. You could hear it from miles away. It's lighting up entire Valley floors. And then of course if you're contaminated and, and what a lot of people is they don't know if their water's contaminated and they're concerned and you can get you can get a test a test is $1000 a shot so nobody's like getting their water tested every week right and so what i talk about is even when people don't wind up with contaminated water their entire kind of sense of security uh, is eroded from fracking right that all of a sudden you are living in this unpredictable disruptive landscape constantly worried if your water is contaminated um constantly dealing with like the 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 literal bone jarring potholes as you drive down what used to be a quiet country road not being able to see the stars at night because of all the flaring going on and so what i what i sort of say with with this idea of ambient insecurity is when your environment for many people the the rural environment that was so familiar to them was a source of refuge and comfort and now it's a source of insecurity and anxiety. Uh, many people spending long periods of time, if they can afford it, away from home, looking to move off of the shale entirely in some instances, right? So this place that had been your refuge now becomes a place you are seeking refuge from. That's what I'm capture with this idea of ambient insecurity. And then the last the last concept that you that you mentioned, civic dissociation. You know, what I say is I'm very sympathetic to the fact that people turned up at these gas permit hearings and a lot of them wanted more regulation than they were, than they had the ability to get, right? As I already alluded to, because the state took away municipalities capacity. That said, people, not everyone, but a lot of folks there were sort of so individualistic minded that when that sort of traditional communities meeting zoning avenue was cut off, that they did not pursue any other avenue. They did not, um, you know, say, well, as a community, maybe we ought to be involved in bread and butter activism, for instance. Um, and, and so much so that actually, like, there, were, there was a small environmental group called the Responsible Journey Alliance. A lot of folks were so distrustful of environmentalists because environmentalists, in their eyes, were liberals. They were liberals who wanted to restrict property rights in the name of nature, protecting nature, putting nature over people. And so, so much so that even when environmentalists presented themselves with opportunities and strategies for fighting back against the things that people didn't like, like the, the responsible drone alliance was trying to get the trucks off of the roads, right? Like for instance, saying, you know, you could, these companies could be forced to run temporary plastic pipelines on the side of the road to bring all the water. Now you wouldn't have the trucks, right? The, the responsible drone alliance was trying to help people understand that they could control where well pads were placed so that you didn't wind up with a well pad right next to your house, for instance. But people wouldn't listen to them. Uh, they were so distrustful of them and, and presumed that these were like Liberal urban interlopers uh, that they refused to associate with them, and 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 that even when things went wrong, the answer was to sue the gas company and sort of handle it privately. And so what I say there is that you know in that way, people contributed to civic dissociation. That you know that that like there's sort of such this mindset of it's my property and I'll do what I want with it, or even when things go wrong, I'll go the legal route. There's this sort of distrust of organizing and activism that that people basically refused, even once they got upset with what was happening, to take responsibility for trying to organize collectively to, to do something about the problem.
2: So you were, you were saying that this is an ethnography and this is something we haven't yet tackled in, in this conversation. So let's talk about ethnography. One key challenge in ethnography is conveying variation. But I think you managed not only to convey a lot of variation, but also variation that's like very subtle and some even like unexpected configurations of both like views and experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's where, where the people in the book, like the people in this community uh, come in. So kind of tell us, about those people, tell us about George, Ralph, Cindy, Barb. Absolutely. You know, the main group of people that I followed
1: were landowners. Uh, and for the most part, these were what I would call conservative, if not even libertarian-minded landowners. Uh, but I did also follow people who were either with or loosely affiliated with the Responsible Journal Alliance, this one very small, I mean, really like a dozen active members group uh, based in Williamsport. And of course, then I I talked to some other people too, landmen, um, people who worked for the industry, but it really centers on landowners making decisions to lease and dealing with the consequences. And then secondarily with these the few people who live there who were against it. Now, the variation comes, and I mean, t- t- as far as like, and I, I agree with you. I don't know if you're getting this point. I mean, Mitch Denier, who was my advisor, always talked about depicting variation. So maybe, I'm, I'm hoping maybe that's why you're emphasizing that because um, Mitch certainly had that influence. But in some ways, depicting variation is easy because people are nuanced and complicated. I think what happens is as we become trained as social scientists, we see our job as to typify and classify and reduce complexity. And so The easy part just comes from actually documenting what's in front of you. And, you know, you just have to resist the urge to say, well, I want to tell this story about these two groups. And so then everybody I meet, I have to sort of fit into these two groups, which I'm going to typify by having these characteristics, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's just to say the people I met, like anybody, were nuanced and complicated themselves. And so it was really just about trying to faithfully document that. Even when they disrupted the story I wanted to tell. I mean, of course, I'm, I, I had my own story to tell. But so some of these people. So there's you know, so one main character who's the very first person you were introduced to, George Hagemeyer. Very, you know, lives on 77 acres. Claims he has not slept all overnighted, slept off the property in over 30 years. Um, very much keeps to himself. Very much like a traditional so-called mountain man, right? Like living on this ancestral estate, not wanting to have to deal with anybody. Uh, very supportive of drilling. And then I've already said, I don't need to repeat it, but but the the interesting and surprising thing that happens to him is that he actually turns against drilling when he starts making a bunch of money and not because anything catastrophic like contamination happened. And it is very dramatic. This was almost like too good to be true as far as a storyline. I invited him to come to my class, with a member of the Responsible drilling Alliance, the idea being that the other person was going to talk about the anti-fracking view and George was going to represent the person who supports it. And I didn't know that George had turned against it. I was now back at NYU teaching and George reveals this to the class. Like, and so I was like, wait a minute, no, you're supposed to be the guy here. You know, and he says to the class, like, what would my daddy say if he saw the way they use this land? And then living right near George, the polar opposite in many ways, is a wealthy liberal environmentalist Cindy Bauer. She participated in the very first Earth Day. She's a member of the Responsible Drilling Alliance. She has a conservation easement on her 150 acre, beautiful, stunning estate so that it can't be developed. And she has been involved in anti-fracking activism. And then the surprising thing about her, the variation, if you will, is she leases her land. Um, <laughs> And you know, to be to be clear, she she leased she she leased it with very severe restrictions. They can only drill underneath the property, so that it has to originate on somebody else's property. So it's consistent with the easement because the easement is about protecting what's on the surface, right? Um, and and but and and how she thinks about this and justifies this is, I didn't lease. The landman knocked on my door over and over again, sent me documents, threw them out, but I didn't make a difference. Everybody around me leased. So I'm dealing with the flaring. I'm dealing with the truck traffic, the potholes. There was a massive well pad right across the street from her. There's a drilling rigs overlooking on the mountain, overlooking her house. You know, it was so disruptive that she was leaving town a lot and it didn't do anything. And so she just felt that the least she was owed, like what she viewed the leasing bonus was, is compensation for what she had already experienced, right? As like damages. That's the way she thought about it. It It's like every day she's spending hours on the phone calling the petroleum company, calling her state representative saying, this ought not be allowed. Look at what's happening here. Getting a camera out. It does nothing. So. She, she doesn't have anybody to sue. It's not she's not successful in those grounds. But in a way, that's how she viewed this as like this is compensation damages for what I've already experienced. Right. And Ralph. Right. How can I forget about Ralph? Ralph Kisberg, who uh, co-founded the Responsible Drilling Alliance. And, you know, it's, it's interesting from the moment of choosing that name, uh, Ralph personally is entirely against fracking, understands it needs to halt immediately. We need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. But Ralph understands that he lives in a place where almost everybody supports it and where they're desperate for economic development. They're not generally inclined towards environmental protection, period. They're skeptical about state or federal regulation. And so even the name, he didn't call it the Anti-Drilling Alliance. He called it the Responsible Drilling Alliance. Personally, he does not believe that that we have seen any responsible trailing. You know, and Ralph is somebody who, who very much wants to connect with rural conservative landowners. And what I really appreciate about him is it's not I think it's too easy to just call him a centrist. Like he's not just a centrist like, oh, let me make a muddied message in the middle that will get more people on board. What I think is most distinctive about him and valuable about what he does is he more or less is an ethnographer like I was. He, he, so Ralph had spent a lot of time living in other places. He, he moved back in 2008 to take care of his dying mother. And as soon as fracking came along, he said, what I need to do is just get out there. I need to be driving around, seeing what's actually happening. I need to sit down with people and get to understand how they're thinking about leasing, the decision to do it or not. And so Ralph... For years, every day, he would, for hours, just drive his car around on country back roads. If he saw a drilling rig, he would pull over and knock on a door. He would show up at permit hearings. And when other residents turned up and said, I live next door to that. And so I'm really concerned about X. He would just say, hey, can I come and talk to you? And he wouldn't show up and say, I'm a part of an organization. Do you want to join? Join me in the fight against fracking. He would just say, what are your concerns? here's some very practical things you could do. Did you know, for instance, that like, if you're going to sign a lease, you can sign a lease that has that has restrictions on where they can place the well pad or the pipeline or the driveway, right? So that's who Ralph is. And and while I was there, I witnessed this really interesting moment where the group that he co-founded, basically, and again, I actually don't blame them. So Act 13 happens, which basically preempts local zoning. Pennsylvania is the only state that's not even taxing the gas extracted from underneath. And so, but but at this moment, the Responsible Adrenaline Alliance as a group is basically fed up with trying to be the group that that pleases everybody, um, they feel like they're not really growing their constituency. The 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 you know the the conservative government of the state is 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 becoming, if it was even possible, more in the pocket of industry. So they start coming out explicitly against a ban on fracking and making that their main message. Um, and they start connecting up with and sympathizing with more sort of confrontational forms of activism not their group directly but like celebrating and advocating for other groups that wound up for instance people getting down chaining themselves together in front of an area where a pipeline was going to be constructed and so what happens to ralph actually is that he kind of gets he doesn't get pushed out i mean they're friends But he becomes alienated from his own group. And so Ralph winds up, you know, it's kind of a sad moment where he kind of gets alienated and disconnected from the group that he co-founded.
2: What do you think that tells us about kind of the possibilities of organizing in the middle of the climate crisis today?
1: You know, where I've really come down on is that the least tapped component of potential environmental engagement with people in rural America, with conservatives, is around local control. You know, as I mean, I've already talked about, I mean, so you've got a lot of people that are actually upset with some of the things the petroleum company is able to do. But in Pennsylvania, Texas, Colorado, there's very little they can do. You have people who, even if they're very they see themselves as very individualistic they actually like zoning and they like zoning and they show up at zoning hearings because zoning is written and voted on by the town. And so it's legitimate. It's a legitimate form of restriction on property and protection. And again, like what a lot of people are trying to protect, when you zone an area rural, you're saying we value what we are calling rural character. However you define that tranquil, not a lot of cars, not a lot of buildings, and we're going to protect that. And part of that, there is certainly room for land stewardship and stopping development to protect rural character. And what what I am seeing now is a lot of, and there's actually um, some townships in Pennsylvania that are going to court to win, to win the right to, to ban fracking locally. And so what I'm seeing, and I've I've written some more popular pieces recently, like one in The New Republic and another in Grist about this, is that like a lot of people like George. They may distrust state and federal government regulation. They may distrust environmentalists, but they are for local conversations and they are for some forms of property restriction because they have things beyond their own property they want to protect. A lot of them do not want to see a rural area turn into a suburban area, let alone turn into like a mining town. So I think that that is where I see uh, you could, I think, environmentalists, and I don't think they're wrong. I'm talking about adding an additional, you know, weapon to the arsenal, if you will. But um, you know, I think environmentalists always focus on federal and state regulation restrictions that are bureaucratic. Um, I don't think that they've realized how much they could get rural conservatives on board if they also got involved in local fights, because you're framing this around autonomy. Local democracy, right? Um, you're not framing this as, as restrictions, cookie-cutter restrictions that the state is imposing upon you.
2: Moving back to the issue of, of ethnography, some might read this ethnography or your book, as a case study and fracking on its consequences. Others might read it as kind of an exploration of how people make meaning and a sense of place around their land. Others might pick on like the power conflict community story. Where do you see your, your book fitting in in terms of kind of ethnographic traditions? And what do you say to people who are working on ethnography and who are agonizing about framing their work?
1: Hmm. I mean, as far as ethnographic
2: traditions in the
1: broadest sense, I mean, I would always I always personally have been more of the inductive than deductive minded. You know, I mean, even the, 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 the focus of the book, the title of the book, this whole thing, focusing on property rights and how that structures the, the land use dilemmas that happen here, that didn't come about till two years after I wasn't living there anymore. I mean, so so as far as that, I, I definitely, you know, again, I went to CUNY Graduate Center where I was, I worked with Mitchell Denier and, and Bill Kornblum. So I've always been um, more inductive than deductive. So not not theory driven, but but really and focused on first on meaning making, not that I end there per se, which is so
2: surprising. And sorry that I interrupt you, because precisely like the book is in a way theory heavy. When you're in an ethnography class, you're always talking about this problem of linking what you see on the ground with the theory. And it is like, no, this is very palpable. This is Locke and Rousseau and Tocqueville there right in front of you. Yeah,
1: well, thank you. I mean, I tried, but what I should say is that it's a book that has big ideas, but it is not a book that has a literature review, for instance. Um, For instance, we talked about this this concept of the public-private paradox. The choice was, rather than put that up front and then every single chapter hooking into it, I basically give you chapter upon chapter of mostly ethnographic descriptive where I'm planting the ideas. I'm talking about how much people value land. I'm talking about Distrust of government, and then I, after I've taken you through that and um, introduced you to the ideas viscerally through people and dilemmas, then I introduce the the, the concept, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so I would say, you know, I I, I definitely am, am somebody who um, is is concerned with keeping you on the ground as much as possible. I I think it matters to me that my subjects see themselves faithfully portrayed when they read my work and so that is always something that guides me as far as the the particular ideas and concepts that guide me that's often serendipitous and open to surprise and comes later through conversations with other people it was actually i was writing the book proposal i had not yet written any papers or chapters and i was writing the book proposal and there was this there was a line where i just said like america is one of the only countries where where this kind of thing is possible this private land leasing and um a colleague was like, is that true? That's not true. So she, she was like, that's not true. I don't believe that. And then other people who read it were like, that seems really important. You know, like, like, so what about that? Is that an accident that that happened? And and so it was then reading about the history of how it is we wound up that way. And holy crap, that is really important. Like, it was not an accident. It was really something about, uh, you know, uh, that and it, where it was. And that's why, I mean, some people might be dissatisfied. Like, I'm talking about Locke and Rousseau. I'm not talking about, I'm not spending a lot of time on political sociology as written now. And that's not to devalue it. But it's because... That's like the actual literal connection. Like I needed to find out why it is that this form of property rights and 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 then I'm looking at what that does now. But where that comes from is it comes from Locke as taking up, taken up by the founding fathers. And so in that way, even the um, you know, the sort of ideas and thinkers, the writers that I interface with, it's not a kind of traditional like. There's no there's not a systematic engagement, I admit, with environmental sociologists or with political sociologists. There's a sort of opportunistic interfacing with people who represent ideas that came to really matter, right? So Eleanor Ostrom can be a stand-in for what I could have, you know, uh, there could have been many other um, people who write about who write about resource dilemmas. Because what was really most important was conveying the ideas to readers, not necessarily. So I was not concerned every step with like hitting you over the head with, this is my contribution to political sociology. This is my contribution to environmental justice. I really just cared about making sure you got the ideas across.
2: My last question about the craft of ethnography is one about generalizability in a way. And ethnographers are often called to explain how their studies apply to other contexts and places and that kind of question that I think it's kind of an odious question. So I want to ask a different question but somewhat related. It's related to to the climate crisis. So the climate crisis is a planetary crisis and it connects territories, populations and local histories in very kind of thick and complex ways. And personally, I think it puts to test our ability to kind of mark the boundaries of any given place for analytical or comparative purposes. And it also puts to test our ability to delimit the issues we study because just like the feedback loops are so weird and so unexpected and just so expansive. So how do we produce ethnographies of the climate crisis that convey the urgent planetary scale of the situation, while also remain, as you've said, faithful to the ground. I think you're right that that's the
1: challenge and that's an important challenge, but I'm not sure that it's unique to climate change. I mean, so for instance, it's like, I mean, the typical, if we talk about the most typical or at least cliche ethnography uh, of an impoverished neighborhood, urban neighborhood, um, mostly you know, consisting of non-white people, uh, There's like the backdrop of deindustrialization. There's sometimes the and then and then they have to decide is like, are we talking about Jim Crow? Are we talking about slavery? Are we going back to 1619 now? Are we going even further than that? And there is a way that all of those things probably somehow are there. And you have to make it you have to make a decision about how you are going to. Animate structure or history in your work. So, I mean, I get what you're saying, and that it might be something even greater, in that, like, you are literally by emitting carbon in the atmosphere having this feedback loop that is warming the planet. But I don't think that's what most ethnographers are trying to trace when they, if they're doing ethnographies of the climate crisis anyway, right? I'm trying to think about how this one case of this one local community of people leasing their land fits into, you know, the amount of parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. I actually think it's a similar problem or challenge as these other kinds of ways that ethnographers have to think about how much history they include, how much structure they include. And the thing is that there's not one answer to that. For instance, that book that came out a few years ago, Salmons and Acorns Feed Our People by Kerry by Norgaard, probably how that gets taken up by most people and is, and is one of the things that I like about it that makes it, you know, that, that it gets taken up is it's one case study of one Native American community trying to reconcile their historic attachment to the land with a modern bureaucratic structure, in this case in California, that is a book that I think gets at these concepts of like land sovereignty and differing Western and bureaucratic versus indigenous knowledge um, and those kinds of things. And so that's like a contribution that that ethnography makes to, to thinking about the climate crisis, which is an important one because it's a moment where, of course, you know, it's not just about the historic injustices, but now there's more attention being paid to how granting greater sovereignty to Native groups to to manage their resources and make land use decisions might help the planet right that's like one way of doing it i mean for me probably the most valuable contribution my book makes to like the climate climate crisis writ large is not showing you how this one bad well poisoned the neighbors it's how i develop this concept of the public private paradox where what i'm trying to do is once i get you to see because it's so easy and obvious how my decision to lease my land can affect my neighbors. Then I say, yes, but do you think about all the private decisions you make that are actually doing the same thing, but are not nearly as obvious, right? And I talked to in the book in a side, but like, I got interested in where my crap goes when I go to the bathroom in New York City. And I find out that some of it goes on trains to Alabama where it's disposed of. And all along the way, it fouls up these communities. Sometimes the train stops for days. And the communities where it stops have to close their windows, cancel their Little League baseball games, because that's how noxious it is. And I'm trying to get us to think about that and to think about political mechanisms, legal mechanisms that enforce us to regulate based on those connections. So there, the contribution is a conceptual one. It's developing a conceptual apparatus that I argue helps us think about a lot of different kinds of cases and how individual private actions fit into the climate crisis.
2: What are you working on right now? What comes after up to heaven and down to hell? I have to be totally honest. I'm not working on anything.
1: I've been home for a year and a half with two kids with no childcare. (laughs) I'm currently working on trying to stay sane. I did get a small grant for a project that I actually haven't gotten off the ground yet, But I did research when I was a postdoc some time ago on human animal disease transmission and the gulfs between animal medicine and human medicine, the bureaucratic cultural organizational gulfs that inhibit our ability to track zoonotic diseases. And obviously, that's really relevant again with COVID. And so I had gotten a grant to revisit some of this work. And so... I aspire to work on a project that looks at different kinds of interventions to break down this divide between human and animal medicine to basically hope to provide an assessment on what's the best strategies for breaking down these barriers and preventing zoonotic disease outbreaks.
2: Colin Jaramac, thank you so much for coming to New Books and Sociology. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.